is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like Sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The 2023 Rugby World Cup is finally upon us. As the rugby world prepares to set sail and turn their full attention to France, the Kalon S Rugby Podcast should be your one-stop shop for an in-depth Irish eye on this magnificent tournament. Over the next three months, there will be over 50 articles and podcasts ready to hit your eyes and ears starting with a pre-tournament preview series detailing the hopes of all 20 teams. There will be a preview and recap podcasts of each of Ireland's World Cup and tournament fixtures, as well as a weekly review pod with guests from the world over. This is the Kalon S Rugby Podcast, your home of extensive, fan-led Rugby World Cup coverage. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the first episode of my 2023 Rugby World Cup preview series. We open the series by looking at the hosts and tournament favourites, the Le Bleu of France. Fabien Galtier may have steered France to the 1999 final, but a World Cup title still eludes this powerhouse. Can they finally bridge that gap on home soil? Or will the pressure and lopsided draw knock them off their perch? Joining me to preview France's tournament are two esteemed rugby writers and debutants on the channel. Our first guest should be well known by listeners for his weekly top 14 column in the Irish Examiner, Mr. James Harrington. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you for having me. No problem. And joining him is the AFP's French rugby writer and proud Welshman, Ilted Daffod. Welcome on board, Ilted. Thank you very much. Welcome. So before before we start and get and get started on, on the French national team themselves, just start with your own excitement levels ahead of the World Cup. How are you feeling? And What's the what's the vibe in the the rugby community across France? So we'll go to you first, James. <laughs> um, the, the countdown clock's ticking really loudly up for me. It's uh, got France. Obviously, they've got four matches coming up before August. They're playing Scotland twice, Fiji, and Australia. And we'll know we'll know Galtier's final thirty three by uh, by the time the, the Australia match kicks off. Um, I'd expect. I, I mean, where where I am in. I live in a small town in southwest France, miles away from any of the matches. Even here, it, the the feeling is pretty palpable now that the, 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 get the excitement is really, really building. And I'd expect things are getting pretty feverish in in the venue cities and where the squads are based. Hilton, how are you feeling? For the are you nervous? Are you excited or there? Oh uh, yeah, there's an element of excitement too. I live just uh, live in Paris, and you. It's a massive international global city, so any sort of event that happens, it kind of finds it hard to, to find its place almost to a certain extent. But there's a nice sign outside the San Lazare train station, which has Paris from World Cup 2023. And you see uh, some advertising and sponsorships like uh, in the supermarket, like uh, Volvic Water's got a little rugby World Cup badge on it. So there's some like pots of yogurt and uh, fruit juice have got it as on it as well. And I'm waiting to see Antoine Dupont's uh, 
uh, voice because he's going to become the train announcement or all the trains in France over the summer and the build up and there during the tournament. So yes, yeah, stuff is slowly building on a probably marketing wise and visual size. And then uh, within the rugby community at like a ground level in the country, you do feel people really realize it because that's kind of one of those topics of conversation that everyone's been talking about is, oh, have you got tickets for the, any games? So have you got like a, a Wales, a pack for the Wales games or have you got a pack for the uh, Saint-Denis-Paris games or you, you're taking a weekend down in Marseille or whatever? So yeah, it's um, it's like, it's not everything that everyone's talking about, but within the rugby community, it is 90% of the conversation, really, which is nice, really, because uh, French rugby's had a few problems in recent uh, years and months with the former president, Ben Laporte, um uh, Vice President Sachin having problems, and also even Montpellier President, uh, Club President Maud Altra with his issue, off-field issues as well. Maud Awas, the former France prop as well, problems. So yeah, there's, there's, there's issues been gone on during this World Cup, and now you feel like uh, it's the home straight, and then everyone is, is is getting in the mood for it. And it's 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 good that excitement is building because you know without being defeatist, we don't know what the story of rugby will be like in Australia in four years or in America four years after that so it's and we won't talk about how Ireland would be way more excited if we had won the bid or anything like that we won't get into that this evening because we only have a certain amount of time but that bid process was won by France back in 2017 so no no time to cry over anymore and probably a move that doesn't get talked about enough is the fact that Fabien Galtier was brought in alongside the French squad alongside Jacques Brunel back in 2019 and that was essentially a project 2023 if you will and like since then, he's won a Grand Slam. He's won. He's got an eighty percent win record in his tests. So I, I'll throw this one to you, Elton. Like with the benefit of hindsight, um, was bringing in Galtier a year early a genius future plan and move? And do you think getting that extra year just in the system and in international rugby has has helped him as opposed to some of his his peers, where there's been a lot of chopping and changing in international rugby? Uh, I wouldn't be a genius move, but I think it's kind of an obvious move to to bring him in. Uh, as head coach after grandfather Brunel, as he's nicknamed by some of the French press. Um, and especially during that World Cup, 2019 World Cup, World Cup campaign, when Brunel didn't do much the coaching, so they used a lot of his assistant coaches. And Galtier, despite being quite a... Uh, he seems quite like a, a, a statesman in, in certain senses, but he does do quite a bit of coaching. You know, he happily enough will give a word of advice, either out on a training paddock or in the gym or during video sessions. Uh, to players and that's what he did when he came in under Brunel he was able to see what everything was about beforehand he was uh, French rugby's main TV pundit for the French rugby game tests so he followed them as close as you possibly could follow a team without being involved in them almost um, and then uh, yeah since then he settled in greatly he knows what he's doing he's even planned ahead for after this World Cup already put in place the, some of the assistant coaches that will come in with some like Laurent Labitte and kind of Gazelle heading to Stade Francais so he plans ahead. He's he's not silly. He's also seen how other countries do with things across the world. And um, in his team announcements, he'd called his placement bench the finishers, the finishers. Something, something Eddie Jones had brought in when he was at England, and even I think before that, then with Japan. So yeah, he's got aware of all of, of rugby on a global perspective, which can be a weakness of French rugby at occasions. Um, so yeah, like you said, it was a genius move by, by Bernard Laporte, who was a, a, a good friend of Galtier, and Galtier kind of has repaid Laporte quite a few times in, in mentioning him and during press conferences or post-match interviews and saying, especially after I think James might be able to correct him, but after the England, they, they ha- hammered England at Twickenham in the Six Nations, he said that this victory is, is for Bernard Laporte while Bernard Laporte's legal processes were going on. So um, they, they were good friends off the field and then um, the, the fruits of that labour and that work that Galtier has been putting in for more than, well, almost four years now is, is has been bore fruit uh, over the past months, definitely. And is, do you want to add anything there, James, before we move on? Um, in fact, uh, exactly right. Uh, the the entire process of bringing Galtier on board was, was quite comically French at the time. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, Middle first suggested it in during the 2019 Six Nations that, that, that Galtier would join Brunel's staff in Japan. But Brunel himself, he was like, no, oh, no, this isn't going to happen. No, absolutely not. Um, and then three months later, and it was after, after the after the embarrassing loss at 40, 44-8, was it, at Twickenham, 
um, uh, 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 Bernard Lepault publicly said that you know bringing Galtier on board might not be a bad idea after all. And then Brunel suddenly, rather pompously, said in an interview that he had decided to bring in um, SNC coach Thibaut Giraud and Fabien Galtier. And he said it in that order, and I think that was deliberate. And then pretty much in the next breath, he said he described Galtier as an assistant who would not have a leading role. Um, French players aren't stupid at all. They know that Galtier, by this time, Galtier was already known to be the next France coach. They were going to, they were out to impress him, not, not Brunel, who's a you know, the lame duck coach on a long written off tilt at Japan 2019. Um, then, of course, France pushed Wales all the way to the closing minutes in the in that quarter final in Japan, with fourteen players after Zephyr uh, Hino was was sent off for elbow, um, and that was probably an over overachievement given the state of France at the time. Um, and you have to say a lot of that has to do with Galtier and a lot of um, working with what he had at the time, doing what he could with the tools at his disposal. Um, I think it was Sean Edwards said in a later interview that that he looked over at the at the French warming up before that match in uh, in Japan, and he was actually a bit nervous. He thought that France could turn them over. Um, it, it nearly happened. It, it turned out it didn't, but it, it, it was it was close. So that early start helped, but it, what happened next was was the key thing when when Galtier got, actually got his hands on the job. Yeah, he's he's done some work, and you know anyone who remembers France from seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, they were a shell of the team compared to what they are now. And like a lot of the talk, and probably rightly so, would be saying that it's the young players that brought this on, this extraordinary talent. Like I, I was doing some research um, for the pod, and like guys like Dupont, Entomac, Woki, Aldrich. Thomas Ramos, Chalange, Jalibert, Penno, like they're all within three, four years of age of each other. Like that's that's the spine of a team all within a couple of years of age, you know, and it's it's an incredible production line. We'll come back to you for this one, James, because like for those who may not be familiar, like is there a reason why so many high profile talents have come true? And not even just now, but since I made the notes, like they've won another World Cup final at under 20 level. It's what is it, three in a row or four in a row across like a six year span? Like it's They've really gone to another level, but like, is there a reason for it that the people wouldn't be familiar? Um, well, there's, there's there's two things. Um, there's the there's a, a, a coherent age grade pathway that's been set that was set up first by Didier Etier, who's now at um, Clermont, and uh, Sebastian Piconnery, who's now at Pau. Um, they set up a coherent age grade path, pathway for the young players coming through, um, and Slowly over time, that that started to bear, bear its fruit as it started in 2018 and then 2019. Obviously, 2020, 2021, 22 were um, cancelled, uh, were hit by by the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, but it's still it's still the same thing. So that, the, there's that coherent age based pathway which which gives shows a route. It's a, it's a literally it's literally a roadmap through the age grades you start here you end up at the france national team if you are if you are good enough as well as that uh there's the gif regulations now these are perhaps slightly legally ropey but uh, they've yet to be challenged because you know, everyone's pretty much on board with them um basically the current rules um and with allowances for newly promoted clubs say that Clubs in the top 14 and the Predator can have a maximum of 13 non-GIF players on their books um, and must average a minimum of 16 GIF players in their matchday squads. Now, a GIF player is someone who's come through the ranks of a French club at in the age grade levels. So um, you start playing at 13. Uh, Jordan Joseph started playing rugby at, uh, at 13 for Massey um, in 2019. He'd done his five years at in in the in the in the um, age grade section to get through uh, to be classed as a GIF by the age of he was 19, 20 at the time. Um, 
and it, it, there's a shorter period if you if you're in an if you're in an academy. So it's a three years in an academy, five years in a centre de formation school. Um, interestingly, that meant that uh, Delon Armitage and Stefan Armitage were GIF players because they spent five years playing rugby in Nice as teenagers. So they they were GIF. This gives this gives them a premium. It also meant that someone like uh, Jerome Taylor who's French born and bred, played international rugby for France, but came to the game late, wouldn't actually be passed as Jeff, despite being French. Um, uh, the, the reasons for setting up in this really, really complicated, apparently strangely French way, uh, is, is to do with Europe, because they can't st help stop freedom of movement and stuff like that. Um, so what this prompted clubs to do is to start to pay more attention to their academies. Um, so they worked harder with Antoine Dupont, Roman Antonac, Louis Carbonell, Leo Colli, Greg Aldrich, Pierre Bougueri, um, and all the rest of them. And these players have come through the system, come through the age grade system that, that, the, that's run parallel to it, and are playing and were brought into their, their club squads and their senior squads earlier because they were doing better. It's, that's probably the most comprehensive um, summation of GIF rules and all that that I've gotten so far because I've just been anytime anyone's asked me when I brought it up I've just been kind of waffling on but it it's it's come to the fore it's been successful wouldn't you say like they've between the under 20 World Cup you look at like I, I think you, you, go on you, you, can't, you can't argue with 300, 320 championships in a row obviously over a six year period because of COVID um, increasingly, it's hard to argue with what is it since Galtier second, second, first, second in the in the, in the Six Nations, charging up the the world, <coughs> world rugby rankings from seventh, I think it was in twenty in twenty seventeen when they won the rights to host the the World Cup to second now. Um, briefly, where they were briefly world number one for I think for one whole week back in <laughs> back in twenty twenty one. It's it's hard to argue with that. The what what is what is quite useful is the fact that they're still allowed a, a reasonable number of of non GIF players, so they can still bring in the big name stars who help bring people through the through the ranks, so that people like Sia Khaleesi can play for Racing, um, Eben Etzebeth can come into to um, too long, um, Cheslin Colby can can make a name for himself at, at Toulouse. Jack Goodhue can go to cast, that sort of thing. So, so there's still sort of big star names coming coming on and coming into French rugby, and there's still a, a fair few of them, and it, it helps sides like Fiji, because there's a lot of Fijian and uh, Pacific Island Pacific Island uh, team players apply their club trade in France, earn their money in France. A lot of um, Georgians, come to France um, and play their rugby. A fair few Spanish players are in, are in, the, in the French system and Portuguese players. So they're helping those players as well while developing their own their own squad. Suddenly we've got well, a surfeit of uh, too many players to play to, to keep for, for, for each position. We've got three, three, three international out halves God knows how many international flyers, the shed load of hookers and and, uh, and back rows, slightly lacking in props, but we, we think they'll they'll cope with that. And more centres and wingers than they can shake a sticker. It's um, it, it's really been it's really been something by France. Like they they have to be admired. But moving from the the systematic makeup of the squad to more the names and the name profile and. Like as as you mentioned at the top of the show, like they're they're going to whittle down a forty-two man squad down to thirty-three in time for the World Cup, and I I suppose we'll just run through the squad um between bolters and guys who may or may not make it, the guys who are nailed on, maybe injury concerns, and we'll start with yourself, Hilda. Do you want to take the the kind of forwards and between guys to look out for, and also you know if there is any bolters or exciting prospects for this World Cup? Uh. Yeah, the forwards, they, they seem to be, despite a lot of the French press's attempts to kind of 
build up some controversy saying that Paul Valenze is is not fit enough or uh, Emmanuel Mafu is definitely going to be picked for the World Cup uh, despite being ineligible. <laughs> it seems pretty settled, really. Someone like Cameron Wackie has been injured for a while, so he might come, he'll probably come back. He will definitely be involved in that 33, but then the decision then is if he comes in uh, to the starting lineup uh, or not. The the one maybe interesting in the back row is Paul Boudinet, who has been a key part of the La Rochelle's two uh, Champions Cup victories uh, over Leinster in the past uh, 12 months, and he may be someone who could oust Dylan Ketan from a spot in the in the 33-man squad. Ketan's been involved from pretty much the start of Galtier's uh, uh, tenure because of his ability in the lineup. but then Boudinet playing at a better club with better players in much better form deserves a chance and will probably get a few caps during the, the August series. Um, so, yeah, th- those are amongst the forwards, but keep an eye out for, yeah, we're always pretty much, we all know who to look out for, don't we, within this uh, French team. And I'm a big fan of Thibaut Flamma. I just like the way that he has adapted to playing for Toulouse, probably uh, the biggest club, rugby club in France and one of the biggest sporting clubs um, in France as well. All, all the pressure that comes to it. And he's just like a take, taken that, taking it like a duck to water and then the step up to test rugby. He hasn't looked out of place uh, for a single second. Um, Tamawaki, as I said earlier, I'm a big fan of him as well, especially in the line-out in, and a bit of open play. And then uh, Greg Alder, uh, who's no better number eight in the world, he won the champion, the European player of the year with the South African sides also involved. And yeah, those are the really players that stand out for me among the forwards. And James is, is the expert on the backs, I think. I might just, sorry now, James, I'll, I'll jump in there just for two seconds because two things, I have to defend Caelan Doris's honour as being at least alongside Audrey as one of the best dates in the world. And secondly, a name that you left out, but a lot of speculation about is Anthony Chalange. Could we expect to see him making a run for this squad or is it just coming a bit too soon? If he's fit and he'll be there, I think, because the coaches like him, they picked him as a captain during the Australia COVID series in July 2021. Um, he's handy in the open. He absolutely destroyed the All Blacks. Um, he tackles everything. He's a good line option. Um, and he probably will recover in time to just, I think he might be in time just to play against the Wallabies on the 27th of August. And then we'll see from there, really. They'll chuck him in the 33, I'm sure. But then if he gets game time to the World Cup, I don't know. But uh, he's also the sort of player who, when you look at him, or when you meet him, when you speak to him in person, doesn't look like a real player. On the field, he looks, okay, he's tall, definitely, but he's not built. He hasn't got massive shoulders. He hasn't got the biggest thighs, you know. And then uh, when you see him on the pitch, compared to some other beasts, some of compared to Roman Taufinoir, you would never say that they they both play rugby, you know. Jean-Roger is a tall guy. He's a tall guy, but he's not a big guy. He's got quite a skinny upper body, but he's just got an engine. And mentally, he's just everywhere. He's like a dog. He's everywhere and everything. And then, yeah, he's he's a, he's a very good addition to this French squad. And the fact that they picked him as captain during that Wallabies tour, and also the fact that he, I think he made his debut in 2017, maybe, something like that. Um, uh, he's got experience well, both for Castres and now for another one who plays for Toulouse. So yeah, Jolange will be in the 33, and then we'll see if they give him a run out to the World Cup as well. And that's that's slightly scarier because he was. I was. Am I right in saying it was the Ireland game he got injured in in the Six Nations, and he was playing very. He was definitely he definitely played that game. And he was playing very well. Um, before he got subbed off, but like he was having a great year as well. He's someone to look out for. Um, but we'll we'll go through the backs and I suppose for anyone at home, take a shot every time we mention Antoine Dupont in this podcast and for the rest of the World Cup <laughs> because he is the best rugby player in the world. But aside from Mr. DePaul, James, what should we look out for? Uh, again, more of the same, I think. Um, I don't I don't see too many big changes coming from the um, from the court, from from the coaching from the coaching staff. Um, Galtier has has long made a big a big song and dance about um, building for this world cup he's he's counted he's counted it down uh he's counted down he's, he's basically uh time scaled his tenure in terms of matches rather in terms of days weeks months and years so it's you know we've we've played x matches we've got x matches left or y matches left sorry um and what he's been what he's been seeking to build is his target always was uh, an average of 50 caps per 
per position. Now, COVID, um, uh, availability, summer tours, um, and all the rest of it has, has, put, has put pay to his, his, his plans for that. So, but what he's been building is experience. So he's not going to suddenly necessarily throw in an entirely new backline or anything like that just because he can. He's, he's so Dupont, yeah, he's got his, he'll, he'll have Dupont uh, behind him, Nuku, possibly Kuyu, Kuyu uh, or Saran. Entomac, because Entomac is Dupont's fly half. That's that's the way of it. Um, that's why the French would... press want Pingjalibert there sometimes as well, which is a bad yeah. move. But Entomac, yeah. they're, they're like brothers, aren't they, around the field? They, they, they absolutely are. They absolutely, it's crazy to think that, oh, you'll just chuck you, Jalibert uh, and it'll be it'll be the same. It won't be because they're, they're, Ent- Dupont and Entomac are virtually one person. Just with four legs, four legs, four arms, and two heads, <laughs> um, and uh, so yeah. Uh, behind Anton Hastoy is pushing for 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 a place in the squad. It might happen. I don't know. Um, your winger, your wingers are, are, are pretty much sorted. Villiers, Pinot, wherever possible, with um, Dumortier and. Possibly, uh, I'd, I'd argue Gaiaton. I think I think I think the, of the of the two hundred twenties in the squad, the 220 guys, Emilian Gaiaton and uh, Louis Bielbiave. Um, Gaiaton is more likely to make the twenty three because he can play centre and he can play on the wing. France have enough enough cover at fullback to make Bielbiave look uh, almost a luxury. Um, they've got. <laughs> They've got um, Ramos, uh, Jaminet, um, and uh, so they're, they're, they're covered. In, they're covered in all the positions. What what Galtier likes is an ability for, to move players around, and and players who can cover. So if he's got an injury issue at centre, he can bring in a, a winger who can play centre. Or if he's got an injury on the wing, he can move move a centre out to the wing and bring in another centre. So Fiku will be. 12 or 13 or either wing because he can do it. Pinot can play, we know Pinot can play centre because that's where he started. Um, Morfana can play either central position. Gaetan can play either central position or the wing. Morfana can also go out on the wing. So he, what he likes in these backs is, is an ability to play across positions that I mean, you, you say you put back three together, you put the midfield together um, and that's one thing, but he likes he likes his centres to be able to play on the wing. He likes his fullbacks to be able to play on the wing. He likes his wingers to be able to play fullback. So if he can do all that, then he's happy. So he's he's got this sort of nebulous amorphous um, backline that can do all the jobs. Dupont can play ten, <laughs> um, so he's covered there. Ramos can play ten, so he's got fifteen. He's got fifteen and ten covered. Jalibert can play fifteen and ten. Entomac can play fifty, uh, some play ten and, and twelve. So that that's that's what he's looking for. So I don't think we'll see too many changes. Possibly, as I say, Gaetan and or Bielbiari coming into the thirty-three. But I'd be surprised if it was both. Of them. Is is there anyone then that would fall into the bracket that could miss out because of a lack of versatility? Then, arguably, Germany. In all honesty. Because he is an out and out fullback, but his boot is is worth its weight. They they said they found out that Jaminet's boot is the longest kick. He's got the longest kick in Test rugby. Don't know how they can prove that, but that's what they say. <laughs> and he's also left footed. Left footed, yeah, he's left footed. Yeah. I think so. So an open play that adds another option. And when he went on that Wallabies tour mm-hmm. in 2021, he hadn't played a game of top 14 rugby. He, no. no, he hadn't. He was, he was the top top point scorer in Port de Deux with a promoted Perpignan. But, but like a few seasons before that, he was playing the third, fourth tier. He'd given up on rugby after Toulon had released him after an injury. And then he was seen, well, this is the guy at 15. And then I thought, okay, sorted. He's going to be 15 for the World Cup. And then Ramos was bubbling away at Toulouse, playing 10, sometimes playing 15, playing all right. And then Jaminet got injured and then Ramos has stepped in and his goal kicking is 
well, on perfect. And also in open play, he offers something different. He's got a bit of mm-hmm. talk casting head about him. So like <laughs> they've they've got options everywhere. And I think you're right, the Jaminet might be might be an 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 unlucky one there, and especially because he's out of form because he hasn't played much really, which is like yeah, not insult, but injured. that's just also his decision to move to Toulouse from Perpignan, knowing that Ramos would be there and also kind of the murmurs of Capozzo joining in there as well. So like uh like uh isn't it's not his fault definitely, but there's an element of like uh maybe he should have chosen another club to go to where they needed a fullback. But uh, Aside from those into top fourteen polit- club politics, uh, yeah, the the strength and depth just within this squad is incredible. And then you look at some of the players who are start pre season already. You're like, I forgot how is he not in the top? How is he not in the front squad? So, yeah, they've got I, I depth across the backs. Yeah, I mean, I forgot Bruce Delan as well, who's another pretty much specialist fullback. Um, so, one of those two is likely to miss out. But again, both of those two have their have their um, Qualities that that you think well, you can't miss. Dua is an incredible fullback, especially given that he's like three foot two or however, however not tall he is. He's he's a he's a safer safest houses choice. Like if if Ramos can get criticised for one thing, it's that he might cross kick a ball across the face of his own goal or something on the five meter line. But like Dulan probably won't do that for you. Like. I think Rog said it in his examiner column or in the press before. He's he signed him because he liked that. He liked someone who was just steady and brings a lot in attack, and that's what Doolan does. And then, like, I suppose we can't we can't talk about France and not talk about you know the clubs doing so well at the moment. Plenty of fa- of listeners won't like me saying it, but La Rochelle have just won a second Heineken Cup final, beating Leinster. Toulouse are the kingpins, have won the top fourteen again. Like and then this consistency that we we haven't really associated for a few years before, say twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen, and club rugby has kicked on to the national team as you said, James. Second, second Grand Slam winners, second again in this cycle, and it'll. I I I throw this one to you. Like this consistency as a whole, eighty percent of games won, even when they went down to Australia with their seconds and thirds and fourth choice players and, and did well down there. Like, I, I suppose, how, how do you even phrase it? Like what, like how was this consistency come and how has Galtier got a squad that is so built in? Is it, is it just that the depth is there or is it systematic or like, where does it come from? Cause it is unreal for France. Like, It's almost, as, it's not as clinical, but it's almost up to with how Leinster uh, produce uh, talent really, and uh, but that's through a lot of very very well off people sending their boys to private schools in a certain kilometer radius. When in France, it's through the clubs and clubs investing and business people in the local area putting money into it. Toulouse are backed by Peugeot, uh, Clément are backed by Michelin tires, um, stuff on say backed by Caprice and Juice Drinks, but that's a different story. So you know, like there's 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 you, you you need money whatever happens in professional sport and you also see good, good people at the helm so Didier Lacroix the Toulouse uh, club president used to play for France play for the club and um, so he, and then went into a bit of business then came back to the club as a president so has finger in both pies and knowing how to run a business and also what knows what it takes uh, for a rugby club to be successful but it goes back to what James earlier was saying about how Didier Rattier and the work he did when he was uh, national technical director at the French Federation, where he moved instead of having um, one squad of players always training at the French centre in Macossi, which is uh, French rugby's kind of headquarters in the south of Paris, not too far from the Orly Airport. Instead of having just one there, he's got they've got plenty across dotted across France. So instead of having your best players coming up from Perpignan or going across from uh, Bordeaux or some of them coming down from Normandy, even down to Paris for a few weeks and then dispersing again, you know, taking them away from the local clubs to a certain extent, taking them away from the, where they know where they've grown up, then what they do is let them stay in, they call them pole, which is like a pole, which is like a hubs, really. And uh, Antoine Dupont, Anthony Gelanche, Pierre Bougaric, Gregory Aldrit, and I'm sure plenty of other players have come through that system where they were based in a pole in Uche, which is the town where uh, Anthony Gelanche uh, and Antoine Dupont went to high school. Um, and that's kind of Born its bear its fruit, and yeah, they've got quality across the board. And also, there's there's a lot of talk of these without talking 
technically a lot of these players have been brought up seeing rugby as a profession now where maybe French rugby was slow to switch on to that to actually this is a serious stuff yeah we can have fun we can maybe smoke a cigarette after the game whatever have a few beers but the, these guys are far more switched on to where they're like actually you know this is a proper job they grew up seeing a general uh, Roman Tanak and Matthew Jalibar grew up in the generation of watching Johnny Wilkinson so he's the ultimate profession as a fly half if you're looking to become a, a fly half um, and I've realised well actually we can be like what classic French playoffs have been like in the past or we can be like what the best are which sadly for a lot of Welsh people <laughs> was Johnny Wilkinson at one time so I think a lot of these players are mature they've got old heads on very young shoulders and, and they're showing us what to do and the quality is across the board and yeah French rugby be it at a local level in the sixth tier or with a World Cup on the, on the horizon is, is blossoming I think you may have nailed it there with the with the old head on young shoulders because you look at the the age group of that French squad, like at least two thirds of the squad are under maybe twenty seven or twenty eight. You could get another World Cup out of them. Like that's that's what we're talking about here. This like obviously they haven't done anything yet. They have won a Grand Slam. They haven't been in a World Cup conversation yet, not for another month at least or two months at least. But like. We could be talking about a very, very good French side who pushes for two World Cups. Like we don't, this we don't know because their point of maturity. Only someone like Gal Fiku and Roman Tarafiano probably won't be at the next World Cup. Fiku might stretch out when he's thirty-three. Mm-hmm. You know, Roman Tarafiano and Winnie Antonio won't be there because they're the wrong side of thirty. But the rest, they'll be there at twenty twenty-seven in Australia, and they'll have had a World Cup under the belt already. They'll have had an extra four years of very good club rugby and some very good test rugby also. So yeah, we can all say that France are favourites now, but if they're favourites for this, what are they going to be in, <laughs> in 2027? But well, no. what's what's particularly scary about that is that these guys like Dupont, Benzmat, uh, um Ramos, Gilange, all all the all these young all these guys who are that age now who are able to do another World Cup have Marco Gazzotti, Oscar Jigum, Baptiste Jeannot, uh, Gaëtan, Biel Biarri, uh, Hugo Reos, all coming back, all coming directly underneath them. Jordan Joseph has rediscovered his love of rugby down in Paul and he's going back to Racing this, this, uh, this summer um, after, after two years out on loan. If Stuart Lancaster and, and all those guys can get the best out of Jordan Joseph, we, there's suddenly there's suddenly the issue of who's behind Greg Aldrich isn't a problem anymore because there's Jordan Joseph and Marco Gazzotti coming coming through as as, as the eights the eights to follow him. Um, and the difference these days is not the talent in the squad. France France has always boasted ridiculous talent. It really has. Go, go back. There's, there's always been a talent. There's always been talented players. They've all been, all been good. The difference is in how they're coached at all levels. Uh, but noticeably for for Galtier, for for the, the senior squad, it's how what Galtier's done. Um, a lot was made. A lot was made at the time about his decision to ditch a lot of the old French guys. I think I, I pointed out. I think I pointed out that there were only two pe- two players in his th- in his first squad who'd actually hit third. Um, um, but the thing is, it, it wasn't a, a top of the head sky blue decision made made out of nowhere. Um, front, uh, the France Deux TV channel at the time showed clips of an interview interviews that, that Galtier and Raphael Ibanez had had with players. And he'd laid out his plans, his, his ethos, his demands, and basically said to them, this is what we're going to do. Can you do it? And there's a, really, there's a, there's a painful clip in which Wenceslas Lopez basically says, no, I don't think I can. I don't think I can give up, make this commitment to this very difficult um, step up in, 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 in intensity. Um, and he's he basically he's, he's not been selected since he's fit retiring. He's he's on a World Cup Joker contract until November the eighteenth. Uh, we're harassing him, then, then then he'll retire. Um, but basically, he he asked Galtier asked his his players if they basically to keep up 
blend in full full time, watching for the changes and try and keep up. That's that's what 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 they were doing. Um, and he um, and he also with his coaches. It, it sounds really trite. He has this phrase, "trying to train," in which. All the coaches go off. They work with academy academy players, with young 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 players, with the France under twenties. And what they're doing with those guys before they even get to the senior before they even get to the senior squad is they're honing their training plans so that when Dupont and the rest of them walk through the door at Marcusi or wherever, there's no time wasted. No time wasted explaining something that doesn't need explaining. No time wasted going, uh, ooh, uh, making it make everything is absolutely ready. So it's walk through the door and you are training. The best example oh. of Sean Edwards, where his French is uh, restricted because of just that some people find it difficult to learn foreign languages. And I think he is happily readily admit that, but his French is good. In, I've watched him during these uh, f- f- full training sessions where they're called high, de- high intensity. He uses three words. Three words in French, and that's all it takes to get the world's best defense. Because the, the atmosphere that's built within the coaching staff is that, okay, we can go and coach in the 20s, help them out, or go and coach the academies, or even coach sixth, seventh tier club rugby teams. Because when you learn, when you keep fresh in your mind of how to be a better coach, be that with an under eight, eight team or Antoine Dupont, you're always aware, and also with test room, what can happen sometimes with some coaches, possibly, is that because you've got big breaks between that, your November test window and the, the Six Nations, you're not coaching on the paddock. You, yeah, you're looking at video, you're keeping an eye on the players, you're planning ahead for the next camp, but you're not on the pitch looking at players, realising on a sp- sports level, and also as a human level, as a personal level, what that, person, that individual needs do they need an arm around the shoulder or you can spot when a player is maybe flagging a bit so you can give them time off or like they given to Paul Valemze this week they said actually we, we know that he's got a dodgy hamstring so we should let him do what he needs to do in, in the gym and do a bit of rugby but he does need to do the, the full intensity session so they've so switched on and Galtier yeah I'm a big fan of him maybe some people might see him quite cold he's a very difficult character when he was when he was at a club coach but some like something's switched, something's clicked, and he's he's just probably one of the best test coach French rugby test coach test French best coaches French rugby has had, and probably is right now is probably with Andy alongside the one of the best coaches in the world. I'm I'm just getting more and more scared. So thankfully, the next question brings us all back down to earth, and it is this draw, this lopsided draw that everyone, uh, well, as we said beforehand, everyone this side of the world, everyone this side of, um of Europe has been talking about anyway and like as things currently stand um, when we record France are second in the world New Zealand are third and they're both in the same pool Ireland are first South Africa are fourth and they're in the other pool and they're destined to face off those four teams in the quarterfinals and we'll, we'll come to you first Ilted, like the, we'll, we'll talk about pool A in a minute the France's pool but the actual draw and the structure and the, it's it's been criticised a lot but what's your your overriding thoughts on it, if, or do you think it's just much to do about nothing from from fans? I used to agree with the criticism of the draw, and I was there when it was made, and it was it felt weird because it did feel quite early for the World Cup. It was made in France's old um, stock exchange, which is like literally across the road from the office. So it was nice, <laughs> nice to go in there for a nice and short commute uh, from uh, where I work. So that was quite handy. But no, and it, it did feel a bit like a lot of pomp for something that was happening in three years' time. Is this really what happened? But now I've realised, you know what? Like to, It's a bit of a cliche, but to be the best, you have to beat the best. And France to win this World Cup, they were good. They were okay. They were drawn against New Zealand, yes, but they probably would have had to beat Ireland or South Africa anyway to win the World Cup. So be that in the quarters or be that in the semis or be that in the final, it's still like you still have to win the game. And obviously, people maybe people are hoping to have like would have hoped to have a France Ireland final. Maybe okay, fantastic. You you can hope for as much as you want, but that's not the reality of it. Maybe the final will be France against whoever else, you know, or Ireland against whoever else, or New Zealand against whoever else. And a lot of the time, finals are letdowns anyway, so don't worry about that. <laughs> so I kind of agree with this thing, and it's something that the, the Galtier said, that they've used the 
November tests uh, last time around where they were like building up. They meant they felt that it was like Australia was the quarters, South Africa was the semis, and Japan was the final. And that's how they built it. So they they kind of replicated that already. So it's part of test rugby. It's part of the World Cup where you, to win the World Cup you have to win three knockout stages plus at least. Well, you have to you have to really put your game going. Sadly, because of the way how test rugby is lopsided and has been for well 30, 40, well since it started really that if the step up for two pool games and three 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 knockout games and you probably you will then you can have a shout with win to win the World Cup. And that's just how it is. And maybe some people in Ireland aren't aren't too happy with it because they feel whatever. Some South Africans aren't happy with it because they'll face the kid in theory face New Zealand um, in the quarters when they probably hope to meet them in the final. I don't know. But no, I think I agree with it's it's maybe it's a much to do about nothing and it'll be a good World Cup what happens and then it makes it easier for Wales to reach the final as well. So can't complain. <laughs> I, I I should throw in there just um, that a stat was given to me before that any team who has beaten Ireland or New Zealand in a quarter final or semi final has lost the next game. So in case you get too far ahead, I'm not not, not saying you are, but just in case anyone gets too far ahead, that, that you know records are meant to be broken, but the record still holds in place at the moment. We've seen it hmm. in 2019 and. I suppose, James, would you go along with this? Is, is it just the Irish fans complaining, as every Welsh fan has said for the last 20 years? Or, is it, <laughs> or, or, or do you think there is general cause for concern? Honestly, honestly, it is what it is. Um, when I, I, I checked back, actually, a bit earlier today. When the draw was made in December 2020, when Hilton went over to the uh, old stock exchange there, South Africa were the number one team in the world. England were second. New Zealand were third. France were fourth. Ireland were fifth. Today, Ireland are first. France are second. New Zealand are third. South Africa are fourth. Scotland are fifth. England are sixth. Uh, Argentina are seventh. And, and Australia are eighth. There's no huge difference there. Uh, the top four is... Three of the top four... Three years ago, well, three of the top four today. Um, the top eight hasn't changed, so you, you're going to you're going to see differences. In in December 2020, South Africa had a four and a half point advantage over England in the in the rankings. I mean, that's massive. That's all blacks in their pomp. That's 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 effectively saying South Africa in December 2020 were unbeatable. Today, world number one ranked side Ireland are 1.3, somewhere, somewhere around there, points ahead of, of France. Um, and and France in second could very well drop to third by the time, by the end of the rugby championship. There's, you know, it, there's, there's the big difference, the big difference right now, the difference between then and now is that the gap between nations has closed. The difference between first and eighth in December 2020 and today has dropped from nearly 14 points to under 12. Um, so what we're saying is sides are getting better it's getting harder to win that's what we as people who claim to love the game of rugby we should all want that we want victories that genuinely mean something we want wins that that, that, that are, are powerful so so what if two of france new zealand ireland or south africa don't make the sense frankly honestly if you want the world cup to be so predictable that you can work out who the semi-finalists are going to be before kickoff Frankly, I pity the lack of romance in your soul, to be honest. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pointless. We are where we are. The draw has been made. I think one of, those, one of the top four will win. I'd like it to be France. Um, but one of the top four will win it. And they've got to do it the hard way. And that will make it so much sweeter. Yeah. It certainly will be the hard way. That's for sure. And like, let, let if we're being real, France have one big pool game on opening night, which it couldn't have been said in 07 because we actually thought Ireland were decent going into the World Cup in 07. That went pear, pear shaped. But opening night game against New Zealand, after that, it feels like, okay, just get minutes into lads, make sure no one gets injured, you know, like, France, when they played Italy in the Six Nations, the, even the last two years, they never really got out of second gear, and they still, they still bet them. Um, and I, I just, I'll, I'll come to yourself first, James. Like aside from the old nemesis of New Zealand, like is this just a favourable pool with a favourable schedule? We know that 
the home side gets a say on their schedule to to some degree, even if wink wink nudge nudge it doesn't happen, but it does. Um, or is there an un, or is there an uneasy sense about that kind of opening game? It's what that opening game means, and it's what happens in Ireland and South Africa's preliminary matches to to uh, to France. I think um, France will go out to win it. They absolutely will. They want they want will, will want to go unbeaten as far as possible. That's that's no great surprise. You can you can only play and you can beat the t- team in front of you. There's nothing they can do about what happens in in the other in the other pool on their side of the draw. But what happens in the other pool on their side of the draw really matters because it's. I think I think I think the most important thing is to get get South Africa over the way as out of the way as early as possible. Um, which means that if France finish top of their pool, South Africa have to finish second, which means Ireland have to beat them. Um, get. South Africa have this habit they they get they get forged in 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 a tournament and they get harder and stronger and tougher and by the end of it if they get to the final you may they they've got it to all intents and purposes um, so you need to get to them early so the earliest France can get to South Africa is the, is the quarterfinals that's what they need if they get that if they get South Africa in the quarterfinals then it's likely they'll meet Ireland in the final and they could, they'll be happy with that. They'll be happy with that, I think, than meeting Ireland in the quarterfinals, beating Ireland and going on to meet South Africa. Blessing, notwithstanding the fact that whichever side beats Ireland in the quarters loses the next match. Yeah, aside from that. Would you um, share the same sentiment as James? Is it, you know, get New Zealand out of the way, beat them? Hope Ireland beat South Africa. And you mentioned actually South Africa's run of games. James, Ireland have a week off after the South Africa game, which could be a benefit to them in the long run. But um, come back to yourself, Ilta, do you think it's get past New Zealand, win that, and then, you know, that's that's fine. Just stay fit and be humming from there. There's a big part of it where uh, you speak to a lot of people involved, like a lot of my friends who play rugby, whatever, and they say the most French thing ever would be to lose to New Zealand on the opening night, but then to win the World Cup. Yeah, very much. You know? Just because it would just be like, there's been so much build-up to September the 8th. Like, when they played them in November 2021, it was like, well, this is this is the appetizer. They even bought the World Cup trophy out in a Louis Vuitton uh, suitcase with Jerome Kaino. Uh, you know, and like it was like, well, this this is like, if there's ever going to be like an amuse bouche for a World Cup opening game, this is it. Um, and then um, if they lose it, <laughs> it'll be a bit of a damp squib. But then if they win the World Cup afterwards, no one gives a damn. So yeah, it's part of it. Like you said that South Africa, they might be, I wouldn't say scared of South Africa, but Beating South Africa in November was um, was a big step for them. It was a big step for France because it was the first time I followed France since properly since 2019 Six Nations. I didn't go to the World Cup, but I followed them really since then. Every home game, almost barring parental paternal, paternal leave, um, being up to Macquarie, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the first time that any of the players that started mentioning the World Cup publicly. Privately, I'm sure behind closed doors with their fam- friends and family, they spoke about it because you would have to plan not to probably get married or not to have kids at that time of the year. But publicly, they were kept quite quiet and reserved and humble about it. But then after that stuff game, Thomas Ramos said, yeah, World Cup's on our mind. Gregory Aldrich said, yeah, the World Cup's on our mind. Which a year out from the World Cup, obviously, is the case. But to say that publicly, that was a turning point. To do it in Marseille for the 6,000 people, where they'll go back in September to play uh, Namibia. Um, they felt like southeast of France definitely got behind them big time. Um, in that Marseille ground, the Velodome, which is a massive stadium in, fo- in French football, definitely. Um, and it could potentially become a massive stadium in French rugby as well now. Um, you you do feel like uh, the players know what's coming. 
they just uh, the All Blacks are looming, but South Africa are also looming. Ireland, it's it's a funny little tit for tat battle they've got with Ireland going on in the press and also on the field, especially at the Leinster La Rochelle Toulouse narrative Munster to it as well. So yeah, it's all it's all quite funny and it's all great and it's plenty to talk about, plenty to write about, and then yeah, September eighth can't come quick, can't come quick enough. It's funny you mention um, Marseille there because it's only just coming to me now. Do you think they may have missed a trick by the fact that France won't be there for a quarterfinal? Because in 07, it was they won the group, they were in Stade France, and if they came second in the group, they were in Cardiff. I think that was a poor mistake. But do you think they could have possibly gone to Marseille or did it have to be Stade France, really? Uh, that part of Wales, there was some... Um rugby national body politics that nobody has really know what actually happened sadly it would be great to see what that be transparent to how that ended up like that but what's in the past remains in the past i guess uh well have they missed the trick i don't know the, the start of france is the start of france is where they have played it is their home yeah they which is quite cool about french rugby because they can they can afford to move the games around the country they played they played japan and toulouse they played that South Africa down uh, in Marseille and the Six Nations next year because Olympics they'll move that around as well um, but no, the South of France is the home and it's where the players are used to and uh, they've got a decent record there as well um, and yeah, it's the biggest stadium as well so the World Cup will obviously like that as and World, World Rugby needs full stadiums to exist otherwise it goes bankrupt so that's how it is <laughs> Yeah, that's that's fair enough. I, I I probably just have a slight bias to it because I think it's an unbelievable stadium. And I, I watched that South Africa game thinking, geez, it's going to be class for the World Cup. And it will, but, but <laughs> it, it, it won't be the same without France there, but it's, it's still a great stadium. And that, you know, doesn't really change too much. And I suppose we've covered now stadium, politics. Um, Ireland has come up a few times. Everything bar DuPont, essentially. But we'll get on to your predictions now, lads. I know you kind of have touched on it, but um, are, are France going to do it? Are they going to lift the Web Ellis Cup for the first time? Or is it going to go elsewhere? I'll come to you first. Our first, our first prediction of this previous series. So could really could really nail your colours to the last year. Just... Um, I think if France don't win it, I think it could be one of France as a country's biggest sporting disappointments um, because of the build-up that's been, uh, because of how successful the team has been over the past four years it's on home soil um all the politics has gone on off the field um so yeah france when in work people ask me who the who i think the favorites are i think france are joint favorites with ireland i think ireland's past in world cup ireland's record in past world cups everyone knows about the quarterfinal curse however, however you want to say it um it all depends on how johnny sexton goes i think he's there's nothing original i'm important is um, to the island setup, um, yeah, I'd like to see France win it just because it would be great. Because you always want for World Cup to be successful, you want the host to go as far as possible because everything comes with it: TV rights, sponsorship, um, money behind bars, shirt sales, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And also, when you're in that country, it's cool when the World Cups loved by everyone. If the hosts get knocked out in the quarters, it's a bit, the semis and finals get a bit flat, really. I think it was similar sort of in Japan. There was a massive, massive, massive thing about Japanese rugby. They did superbly in the pool stages and losing to South Africa was a bit of a, okay, it's kind of dropped the the intensity to certain extent. So I'm not going to say France is going to win it. I'm going to say one of France or Ireland are going to win it. Okay, very, very fence-sitting answer. But to me, it's it's the safe bet. Like, let's let's be real. They've, they've thrown up two of the best games of rugby of the last four years in their last two matchups. And it's personally, I do think France will win it. I, you know, that that's me saying as a rugby viewer, not like taking the Irish hat off. But James, do you think France will go all the way or do you think it's um, for someone else? I genuinely hope they do. I genuinely hope they, they, they go there and, and win it. It would be just, just, just reward for, the, the turnaround um, that we've seen under Galtier, we, we, we've expl- we've tried to we've discussed the, the things around it, his flex and, and the systems around it. We tried to um, talk about how it's not all him, but there is a lot of him there. 
Um, and there's also a lot of Rafa Ibanez as well, and, and Sean Edwards, and Ron Levitt, and Queen Gazelle, and the, the, the senior, the senior uh, Jerome Garcez, uh, who's, who's worked so hard on their, on their discipline. Um, it will be just the uh, France have put a lot of financial, political, rugby capital into this. Um, and it kind of needs to work. Um, I don't necessarily think if they didn't win, it would be all that bad because we've seen this turnaround. We, you know, we, we had from 2000, from the, after the World Cup final in 2011 until the start of the Six Nations in 2020 was just a dreadful period. And then the start from the start of the Six Nations, you've seen the turn. We've seen how things have changed, how a coherent and sensible and and organised coaching structure can turn good players um, and uh, hugely talented players into actually a hugely talented team. Um, and it's it's important. And as I say, I I, whether, whether if they don't win it, it won't be the worst thing for them but it would be much better if they did and went to Australia as champions rather than as the side that nearly got there they've, they've got to three finals they need to make it four actually win one I think the big thing as well I think if anyone hasn't read Unholy Union by Michael Aylwin read it it's a probably the best book of rugby you'll ever, you'll, ever, you'll ever put your eyes on. And he's got a quote saying that if you draw a line between Bordeaux and Lyon down, there's 27 million rugby fans. That's more than any other country that really has rugby apart from Japan in it, really. Really interesting. Mm. You might, England has a population, but the heartlands of economically rugby is the south of France. And I think if, yeah, we can keep going and rugby is in a very difficult place at the moment, financially, morally, um, health wise it's complicated but what we what 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 rugby needs is money globally it needs investment from people and when you have a, a population pool a decent population pool as france is yeah we can dream about getting china involved or the us involved or india involved but that will take decades maybe not the us but china and india what france already has is a population pool of mad rugby fans who absolutely love rugby and and, and understand 15 aside rugby as it is. And if France win the World Cup, that pool of population who love rugby will increase in quality and quantity. And I think rugby global globally would be, would be better for it. But then at the same time, if you're Irish, if you're South African or a Kiwi, <laughs> then you would disagree, wouldn't you? But no, yeah. that's just me seeing quite globally working for a global news agency, seeing things a bit stepping back. And yes, James and I both live in France. We cover the Pro de Deux top 14. We love it for the, for the good and the bad sides of it, but yeah. it would be a nice fairytale ending as well. So. And that's, that's an important note to end on because may, maybe there's a bit of an Irish obsession with France and, you know, the old French rugby and the, the French style that, that used to beat us in the 90s and the 2000s in particular, but there would be a very good romantic element if France did win. Like if England won in 2015, I don't think me, people would have celebrated. I don't think too many people but, celebrated but, New Zealand in 2011. If, but If England win anyway, if England win any time, no one celebrates part of English today. So. <laughs> if, if England or Wales win this World Cup, everyone's going to say it's going to have an asterisk. So like, you know, <laughs> but... They they would be that romantic level if if France do on home soil like they've got the best player in world rugby the most marketable player in world rugby as their captain he's about to go to the Olympics like e- even if he doesn't make a great sevens player and there's no hope in hell that he won't make a great sevens player he's going to the Olympics because he is Antoine Dupont and like I know World Cups you could argue that there maybe. You know, England 03, New Zealand 2015. It's not always the outright favourite who goes on to win. But if France do it, I think it mightn't be great for the provinces. It mightn't be great for Irish rugby because typically we have a hangover season on World Cup years. But it would be something remarkable, wouldn't it? And I, I wouldn't begrudge them. As long as it's not an Ireland France final, I, I wouldn't begrudge France, <laughs> to be honest. Do you know? But, do you know, do you know I wouldn't mind an Ireland France final. 
it would be spectacular to be fair <laughs> it really would like that's not just me being Irish but like you know England 2015 they needed Ireland to go far because that's where all the money was and that's where all, who had bought all the tickets and even if Ireland France go like it was often said about Munster fans back in the day that even if there was no tickets to get in you'd find someone in there like they got down to Cape Town for instance and it would make for a cracking final and if it does happen the first game of the Six Nations the following year is Ireland against France in Marseille. So st- write write your stories now, I suppose. Um there wouldn't there wouldn't be a hangover after that for that one, I don't know. There would be one hell of a hangover. Um, <laughs> but we we'll leave it at that, lads, because I've I've kept you more than long enough. And thank you very, very much for joining me. Um I'll be back again tomorrow with the second preview pod and we continue with Poulet. And I caught up with New Zealand journalist Jamie Wall to hear what his on his thoughts on the All Blacks, who would seek to avenge the ghosts of 2007. And that will be followed with a preview of Italy on Thursday with the recap of Ireland's warmer clash with the Azuri rounding out the week. So thanks at home to everyone for listening. If you do like what you see or hear, please do subscribe. And you can find all the links from my channels below, as well as links to my guests, James and Ilta's Twitter pages, which I highly recommend for news this autumn. And keep an eye out, of course, for James's uh, top 14 column in the Irish Examiner but for now and until tomorrow take it easy Sports Social Podcast Network I'm Victoria Cash thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline if you feel like you do the same thing every day press 1 if you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes press 2 We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over a 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.